If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. This is Murder in the Rain 
where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. years ago, a music video hit the airwaves that changed how videos could be used for good. Soul Asylum's choice to use photos of missing children as the backdrop to their song Runaway Train did in fact bring children home, in some cases heroically, in some against the children's will. Sadly, some were returned home only to be laid to rest, and others yet remain lost. For the next three episodes, I'll be talking about the individual cases behind those faces and what the outcome was if there is one available. There are currently 1.6 million street kids in America, up 60% from when the iconically Rotten Tummy music video Runaway Train was released by alternative band Soul Asylum. Originally airing in May of 1993, I was only 10 and MTV was the forbidden fruit of my household. But the video was so prevalent, I of course saw it several times. The dreary, oh-so-grunge sound of the song, accompanied by gritty photos of children that were missing, had my little brain in a tizzy. I didn't understand what street kids were or fully appreciate why young people would want to escape their homes. So part of me felt like they had all been victims of abductors or murderers. And let's not forget the terrifying end where the woman actor is walking her baby in a stroller when she's distracted by a shop's window. Then that scary smoking lady in the clunker of a car gets out and grabs the baby and takes off with it as the mother runs after the car screaming. It still freaks me out to this day. Did that video scare you guys? No, but I loved it. It didn't scare you? No. (sighs) Josh? It did because my sibling at the time was uh, kind of doing some running away and kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it, but sort of like, act, you know, Risky behavior. Yeah. And it was so, yeah, it definitely affected me. And I, I watched it a million times and oh, wow. really didn't like uh, the lead singer's hair and still don't. <laughs> yeah, no. Let me clarify. <laughs> I love that song. So I was obsessed with it. I think the content kind of went over my head at the time. Yeah. it's I'm even watching now. I'm like, oh, they're alluding to that girl being a sex worker because she's been trafficked. Right. And like, that I didn't been, understand exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. It was just I also unsettling. didn't realize it was real at the time. Like it right. took me a couple of years before I understood that. And then it, I, I wouldn't call it scary. It was always very sad yeah. to me. Yeah. What year did that video come out? 1993. It's the 30th anniversary okay, so as like, we speak. I was like 14 probably. So yeah, I was a little little older than you yeah. than you boys. <laughs> a, li- a, little, uh, a little older. Three years. Mm. Almost four. Mm. Sorry. Four and a half. Probably in a whole different school. that's always the measurement isn't it well I was in middle school though so you're significantly older (laughs) inspired after covering street kids for my episode of the same name and to acknowledge the 30th anniversary of this groundbreaking and life-saving video I thought now would be a good time to revisit these stories as I've wanted to out of my own curiosity for years For the next few episodes, I'll be covering as many of the original missing children that were featured in the first American versions of the video. In all, it is claimed 36 children were featured over three videos. 
Variations of the video were made and aired around the same time to add other photos, although the original version was played the most often. Different children were shown in international versions, including some of the victims of Australia's Ivan Milat. Hoping to bring light to new cases, an updated version of the video was released for the 25th anniversary in 2018. These stories are from a video that is 30 years old, and there isn't one comprehensive list anywhere. Unfortunately, I was not able to find all the versions of the videos to get all of the names, and for some of the children who were featured, there is just no information. I know I'm not the only person who has looked into these cases, and the True Crime Society blog and the Morbid Library were very helpful in finding information about these cases that don't have much. In all, I will be talking about 20 children who were featured in the U.S. versions of the videos. For some, I literally only have a name. For others, their stories could be their own episodes. Before we get into the cases, let's take a moment to talk about the band, the song, and how this iconic video came to be. Soul Asylum is currently comprised of Dave Perner, Michael Bland, Winston Rowe, and Ryan Smith. Originally from Minneapolis, they didn't find huge success until 1993, 10 years after forming. Runaway Train was written in only half an hour, and it was clear from the start it was going to be something people would be connected to. A half an hour? Yeah. Shocking. I love that song. That is shocking. Sometimes it just goes and flows right out of you. Dang. For the video, they hired Tony Kay, a man who was fairly new to directing but had worked with Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. After being hired, the idea struck him as he was driving home one night and saw a poster for a missing child. He told the band he wanted to do with the video what had recently been done with milk cartons, use the platform to highlight missing and endangered children. The band was on board and the Center for Missing and Exploited Children provided them with a list of missing children they could use, focusing on those who had been listed as endangered runaways. The song would go on to win a Grammy for Best Rock Song and would find itself in the top 50 songs of the year on 14 charts and would be certified gold in Australia, Austria, Germany, New Zealand, Sweden, and would go double platinum in the U.S. Tony Kay would go on to direct other videos for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Johnny Cash, and Paul McCartney. He would also direct the films Detachment and American History X. There was a lot of drama and battles of ego with American History X, so he actually removed his name from the credits, although now he can admit that he was in the wrong and has since apologized. Were those his only two directorial features? I believe so, yeah. As for Soul Asylum, Dave Perner and his sort of dreadlocked hair would famously go on to date Winona Ryder as one of the most 90s couples to have ever 90s and the band has lost and changed members. They continue to tour and have released a deluxe edition of Grave Dancers Union to celebrate the 30th anniversary. You can find out all about them and get tickets at soulasylum.com. First up is Ginger Sue Hudson. She went missing in 1992, and I can't find anything about her. The blog from True Crime Society did have a screenshot from the video's YouTube page with a caption that said, quote, I can't believe I finally found this video. My sister was featured on this video when she went missing, but was found months later safe and sound. Love you, sis. This literally means nothing, as anyone can post a comment on YouTube and claim whatever they want. But we do hope that this one is true and that Ginger was indeed found safe. Next, Michelle Ann Farley. It was rumored after she went missing in 1992 that she was found alive soon after Runaway Train came out, and she even told band members that the video actually ruined her life. 
This was due to her being at her boyfriend's when she saw her own face come across the television screen, which then forced her to return home to an abusive situation. Another case is that of Christina Ann Wood. She went missing from Live Oak, California on December 2, 1991. It was believed she was in the company of an adult male. She was only 15 years old at the time. She was 5'4", 145 pounds. She had brown hair and eyes and a tattoo of a heart on her left ankle. And that's all I could find about her. Emily Tamara Poise. There are rumors there are police records pertaining to her disappearance that were dated after she went missing in 1992. So it is believed that perhaps she was found alive after the video and then maybe ran away from home on another occasion or something else happened that led to more police documentation. Now for some of them with a little more information. We'll start with Martha West Dunn and her boyfriend, Eric Owens. While Martha was the one featured in the video, neither has been seen since 1990. In 1990, 15-year-old Martha was struggling with drug use, as was Eric. On September 4th, her parents went to Oklahoma to pick up their daughter, who had been visiting family, but it was time to get back to school, so they were driving her back to Texas. Back home in Dangerfield, Martha wasn't happy. Around 2 in the afternoon, she and her parents got into an argument, possibly about school, possibly about her drug problem. Later that night, around 10, Martha phoned Eric. That was the last time Martha was seen. It's believed since Eric had an aunt that lived in Hayworth, Oklahoma, that the pair may have traveled to her. There had even been tips stating that they had been seen in the area. Eric's mother lived in Wichita, leading to the second theory that perhaps that was where the young runaways ended up. But neither the Kansas nor Oklahoma destination theories could be confirmed by authorities. Almost a month later, on the 30th, a call was made to Martha's house. Her father spoke to a friend of hers that claimed to have seen them in Oklahoma. She went on to say that she helped them out by getting them something to eat and providing them with a shower so they could get cleaned up, as she said they were, quote, dirty and hungry. Martha's dad informed the police of the call. They followed up by checking in the area of Durant, where she claimed to have seen the couple, but they could not be tracked down. Martha is white, was 5'4 and 95 pounds when she was last seen. She would now be 47 years old. The drug use may have led to medical complications. She has brown hair, brown eyes, she has gaps between her teeth, and two small scars on her right cheek that go from under her eye to her jaw. Eric was 17 when he disappeared, making him 49 years old now. At the time, he was 5'10 and 140 pounds. He is white with brown hair and brown eyes. If you have any information about Martha or Eric's whereabouts, you are asked to call the Morris County Sheriff at 903-645-2232 or the Augusta Department of Public Safety at 316-775-4500. Elizabeth Wiles was just 13 years old in 1990 when she left her family and home in Lamar, Arkansas. She and her older boyfriend, who was not approved of by her family, decided to hitchhike from the South to California. Perhaps her home was unsafe. Perhaps her mother was understanding of her leaving. Either way, they were gone. Along the way, she told everyone she was 17. The pair got to California and started their new lives. On his own and without discussing it with Elizabeth's mother, Deborah, her father, Duane, had filed a photo and report to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Being an endangered runaway and having been gone for nearly three years, Elizabeth was shocked to see her own photo come across the screen as she watched MTV. 
She had a lot of emotions about it, but after a week, she decided to call her mom. After three years of zero contact, the pair wept as they spoke. Apologies were made, and Elizabeth was soon home with her mom, who was just happy to have her daughter back. Elizabeth would go on to get married, live in Tennessee, and become a real estate broker and contractor. Elizabeth was the first of the runaway train kids to be recovered. This earned her TV interviews and a backstage meeting with Soul Asylum. Upland, California is located halfway between Los Angeles and San Bernardino. And that's where we're going for 11-year-old Patrick Sean Betts' story. When questioned later, friends and family would say Sean, as he went by, wasn't one to be easily fooled or tricked. He was not naive. It was the evening of January 20th, 1988, when Sean, his sister Pamela, and his mother Barbara were ordering their dinner at the Pizza Chalet. The restaurant was owned by a Middle Eastern family, and the owner's child was hanging out in the restaurant area. Wanting to play some arcade games, oh, weren't those the days, going to Wall Street Pizza in Gresham, ordering pizza, playing games while you're waiting. Nothing was as exciting as getting some quarters from your parents. You could play Pac-Man or get one of those Flintstone egg toys. Did you ever have those where it was like the plastic egg? I was obsessed with the Flintstones egg thing at my local Pizza Hut. You had one? Oh, anytime I saw one, I was just thrilled Wasn't for it, some reason. It was like Fred was riding dino or yeah, dino, dino or whatever I think so. and, then, and it yeah. would like twirl in the middle and just yes. crap out an egg mm -hmm. for no sad. reason <laughs> i yeah. didn't have that we did have the little egg machines or not eggs but the oh yeah 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 toys but i didn't have that and this was just mystery crap you're like yay the dinosaur is pooping out an egg for me i actually have a great picture of julie and i from when we were in first grade holding our little toys out from that machine at her <laughs> birthday party and we, we use it Look as at like our a hall we use it as a side-by-side -side to like where we are now. It's oh, just really cute. cute. <laughs> well, someday we'll take you over to Wall Street. Oh, we'll good. get you a Flintstone egg. And that's exactly what Sean did. He was begging his mother for some change so he could go play. She obliged and he ended up playing games with the owner's child. At one point, as 11-year-old mischievous brothers are to do, Sean took it upon himself to play matchmaker for his sister, trying to get her to talk to the cute, college-bound pizzeria worker behind the counter. Seeing as the boy was leaving for school the following day, Cupid's arrow was amiss. Before the food arrived, Sean was on to bigger and better plans. There was a basketball game taking place at the nearby high school, and the boys wanted to attend. Barbara gave Sean permission to leave. As he excitedly scampered out the door, he said the last four words his family would hear him say. Save me some pizza. Off the boys went to watch the game. While they may have known the schedule, they didn't know that that night's game was away, which they learned upon arriving at the gym. Bummed, but still wanting to hang out, they went back to the pizza chalet to play off the quarters they still had. It was around 9 p.m. when Sean decided to take the short walk home. And that was the last time Sean was seen. Sean's family expected him home after the game, but they were unaware that he had detoured back to the pizza chalet. As the hours went on and Sean did not come home, his family started to panic. They nervously waited and waited for him to show up, but he never did. Hoping to get help and to start a search as soon as possible, the family called the police. Not long before Sean's disappearance, he and a classmate got into a physical altercation and charges were pressed. He was set to go to court, so the responding officer came to the conclusion that his fear surrounding the possibility Ugh. of going to juvie was strong enough that he simply had to have run away. That's some bullshit. Yeah. 
That's why the family had several counterpoints. The last thing he said was that he wanted more pizza, sounding like he had plans to return. He had actually talked to them, and he said he wasn't concerned about the court date. Additionally, not a single one of his personal items were gone from the house, and he was still just 11 years old. He had a blanket that he could not sleep without. There was no way he left on his own accord and didn't at least take that with him. The officer didn't care. He simply assured the family, oh, he'll be back as soon as he wants to be, and there's no need to worry. Like, what is the actual harm in treating it like a serious matter? Oh, well, then they have work to do. Okay. (laughs) Is it not taxpayer money that pays you for your work? Hence the frustration. And 11 That is a baby. Like, even if they ran away because they're scared, they're still 11. Just because a kid, I think that's what gets so frustrating with this is like, oh, they were using drugs. They're 15. They don't Mm -hmm. understand addiction. They don't understand drugs. They don't understand where that can lead. Oh, he ran away. He's 11. He doesn't know what happens at night. He doesn't know how to be on the street. He doesn't know how to protect himself. It doesn't matter if he ran away. He's 11. That's really sad. Since he was not considered missing or kidnapped, there was no news coverage about Sean, making the phone call made to his school the next morning all that more alarming. Calling the school, an elderly-sounding woman said that she was Sean's grandmother and that Sean had moved up to Washington to live with her and he would not be returning to that school. Oh, my God. Sean was close with his grandmother and knew that she had recently moved from Washington to California. His grandmother was cleared, but the family thought the mentioning of a grandmother in Washington was Sean's way of having those who took him send a message. There's always the possibility that whoever abducted him and made the call had been stalking him and the family and knew that the grandmother had been in Washington. Even though there was no proof of Sean running away, he was listed as such, which left the family with no media support. On their own, they did their own searches, canvassing, and flyer handouts. Because of their efforts, a woman who worked near the chalet called in to say that she had seen Sean with an older boy, but she couldn't be certain if it was a third boy or the boy he had been hanging out with that night. Finally, the original detective returned to the home to start an investigation and search. Motherfucker. Four months later. So obviously anything from witnesses to clues would be long gone. This did, however, allow finally for media coverage. Not that they got much. It was literally old news. When the detectives finally began looking into this case, they started by going to the restaurant. That's when they learned that just weeks after Sean's disappearance, the owners had closed the doors and moved to Los Angeles. (gasps) Tracking them to the West, they learned that they had already left L.A. for somewhere back in the Middle East where they were originally from. This was clearly suspicious and alarming, especially since the owner and his boy had been some of the last people to see Sean. With the family gone, they couldn't question their son, the owner, or find out the information about the college boy who had been working that night. There was no telling what all of them could have known. While this sounds fishy, there may have been a legitimate reason for their departure. There was a mention in a Reddit thread about this case, but nothing I could find, you know, anywhere else legitimate, that there had been a family from the Middle East who lived in the same home the Pizza Chalet owners lived in. As a possible hate crime, that family was shot and killed. With Sean's case finally getting attention and the Pizza Chalet being a focal point of the investigation, they might have simply been running for their lives as the community members could have taken perceived justice into their own hands, even if they hadn't been involved. 
So they didn't take it seriously after they realized the grandma hadn't called the school? Yeah, no, it took them four months to be like, okay. This is scary. Like, as a parent, mm-hmm. I your daughter is only a couple years older, and she could just flat out disappear, and they could find some sort of... Re- oh, she got in a text argument with someone. She ran away. Yeah, and then you have that's nothing. horrifying. And it like it would force parents and other loved ones into those similar dangerous situations, mm-hmm. doing their own, probably their own yeah. extra legal uh-huh. investigation. Yep. That's... Yeah, asking people on the street or have to. or asking the person if there was a dangerous person who did something. Well, how many times do we even talk to families where the case would be totally gone from the media mm-hmm. had they not chased after it themselves mm-hmm. doing their own investigation? Yeah, it's not fair. Oh, and I do think that makes sense with the family having reading that like the family that was there before them was shot and killed and so, like, there's obviously tensions, especially, you know, in the early 90s. I suppose it could be a coincidence, but that's still really... It'd be nice to be able to talk to them. Yeah. To just be like, hey, can we get a timeline? But there was, when I was reading all of that, there was nothing, I mean, obviously it's minimal information, but nothing in my gut that was like, hmm. Well, and considering how they would be probably the center of attention wherever they go, they couldn't just travel with some random white kid. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're talking like early 90s. So it's like Desert Storm and all sorts of like weird stuff in the air as far as how people were perceiving anyone from the Middle East. I feel like it's unlikely they'd go unnoticed with a white kid in tow. Exactly. Yeah. As for other suspects, police started to focus on Sean's brother. The teenager had an alibi of playing a live show with his band in San Francisco that night, but maybe because he was 15 or just because he was close to the situation, he was a person of interest. The detectives even picked him up at school and without parental permission, took him in for questioning. He was there for over five hours and was even given a polygraph. The police were trying to force him to sign a confession, and when the family arrived at the station, they could hear the officers screaming accusations at him all the way down the hall. Oh, man, I'd sue them so hard. Mm-hmm. As a teen with an anxiety disorder, it basically canceled out any of the results they got from the polygraph. The fact that the police took him in and presented him as a suspect gave the community permission to see and treat him as the killer oh. or at the very least a kidnapper. That judgment has followed him through the last nearly 40 years of his life. In 1991, police swarmed the family's home and without answers, started searching. For about 14 hours, they used cadaver dogs to search for clues of Sean's location. This was because they had received a random tip that claimed they knew Sean was buried under the house. The family was furious about how they had been treated by police and that Sean's case was never taken seriously. Besides a milk carton and finally getting Sean's status changed to missing and endangered, Sean was featured on the runaway train video. Please tell me there's good news after that pause. (laughs) Now 74 years old, Barbara is desperate to know what happened to her boy. Sean's grandmother and father have both since passed, never knowing what happened. They don't want to just remember Sean for being gone. They want to remember his sly sense of humor and goofy nature. And they just want to know what happened that night and where what they assume are his remains are located. There are no known suspects in Sean Betts' disappearance. If the police had not only taken the family's pleas for help seriously, but actually started looking for him right away instead of waiting 16 weeks to do so, maybe they could have found something. Instead, he simply vanished in the night 
without a single trace. It's possible someone saw the young boy walking home and simply picked him up and took off. But how do you solve a 35-year-old case with nothing to go on? Once again, it all comes down to tips. There is someone who knows something. You saw something that night in Upland. You know someone who maybe started acting weird in early 1990. Maybe a truck driver or someone who traveled in and out of Upland. Patrick Sean Betts was born on June 21, 1976. When he disappeared in 1988, he was four foot seven and 90 pounds. He was wearing a gray shirt, gray pants, and white shoes. He had brown hair and green eyes and a birthmark on his left cheek. If you have any information about Sean Betts' disappearance, you can call the Upland Police Department at 909-946-7624. His case number is 8801571. Sadly, there isn't much to be said about Dwayne Edward Fochman. On July 22, 1986, Dwayne was just 15 years old. Just like in Sean's case, the police believed the teenager left on his own accord. But for those who knew him, the years that have passed without any contact with anyone he knew proves something happened to him. That something could have been that he walked on the beach as he lived in Lincoln City, a coastal town just a little bit north of the halfway point in Oregon, of which he was last spotted in the downtown area. Maybe he was simply swept out to sea. Others, like commenters on websleuths.com, feel that there may have been a pattern of disappearances that have never been connected. Although Dwayne was last seen in Lincoln City and 14-year-old Jeremy Doland Bright disappeared from a fair in Coos County, there are thoughts that the 140-mile difference doesn't matter. What does is the similarities. The name Jeremy Bright may ring a bell as Emily covered his case in our At the Fair episode. Here's our True Crime Tuesday clip for a reminder. On August 14, 1986, 14-year-old Jeremy and his 9-year-old sister, who were in town visiting family, met friends at the Coos County Fair in Myrtle Point, Oregon. Jeremy and his sister separated to hang out with their own friends for a few hours, but the pair had plans to meet at the Ferris wheel at 5 p.m. His sister waited for him at the Ferris wheel, but he never arrived. The last time anyone spoke to Jeremy was around 4.45 p.m. that day when he made a long-distance phone call to his mother who worked in Grants Pass. His family has never seen or heard from him again, but there have been several unconfirmed sightings and multiple rumors circulated regarding his disappearance. These range from suggestions that he had a drug overdose at a party to being accidentally shot while swimming in the Coquille River. These rumors are unsubstantiated. Police have classified Jeremy's case as a non-family abduction and likely homicide. There has been one person of interest in this case, and that man is named Terry Lee Steinhoff. He was Jeremy's former babysitter. On the day of his disappearance, multiple people claim to have seen Jeremy sitting in Terry's truck. Police questioned Terry, who was not cooperative during their investigation. However, there was never enough evidence to arrest him. In 1988, Terry was arrested for the stabbing death of a woman named Patricia Morris and was sentenced to life in prison where he died of a drug overdose in 2007. A memorial service was held for Jeremy in 2011 on the 25th anniversary of his disappearance. His family believes he was murdered and that his remains are somewhere in Coos County. There have been many tips in the past three decades since his disappearance, but no real leads have stemmed from them. Jeremy was last seen wearing a black windbreaker, a red tank top, 
blue shorts and black Nike sneakers with red shoelaces. At the time of his disappearance, he had a broken index finger and stood six feet tall and weighed 140 pounds. Jeremy has brown hair, green eyes, scars on his forehead and nose, and a mole on his chin. Today, he would be 49 years old. If anyone has any information about Jeremy's case, who can they reach out to? Tips can be submitted to the Coos County Sheriff's Office, and they can be reached at 541-396-3121. Jeremy disappeared on August 14, 1986, just a month after Dwayne. They were similar ages, they both had dark hair, they were both on the coast, and they were both classified as runaways. Then there was the case of Kirby Allen Bessie. His is a bit different, but also shares some similarities. Just two weeks after Jeremy disappeared, Kirby was hanging out at the Blue Moon Cafe in Coos Bay, and he hasn't been seen since. Now, Kirby was 27 years old, but he was in the same area that Jeremy had last been seen. He had dark hair, He was even the same height, about six feet, as Jeremy. Dwayne was the shortest of the three, standing at 5'5". There aren't any documents connecting these disappearances, but it's important to keep their names out there, and it's equally important to look at patterns that may lead to someone piecing something together, which leads to answers. Kirby was not listed as a runaway, but I can't find anything saying what he was listed as besides a missing person. Coos Bay Police Chief Gary McCullough, no relation, said in an article from 2016 that they had followed through on any and every tip that had come in. Back in 2010, they used cadaver dogs to search around Myrtle Point, but they found nothing. His sister Annette said in the same interview that she feels she knows what happened to her brother, and without saying what it was exactly, she simply wishes to have his body to lay to rest. Dwayne may have spelled his name with a U or the W-Y version, One of his right fingers was crippled, and he had an injury to his ankle that may have caused long-term issues. He was wearing jeans, a black jacket, and may have had a stud earring in. As I said, he was 5'5", 130 pounds, with dark hair and dark eyes. If you have any information about his location or what may have happened to him, please call the Lincoln City Police at 503-994-3636. If you have any information about Jeremy or Kirby's cases, please call the Coos County Sheriff's Office at 541-396-3121. Leaving the Pacific Northwest for a bit, we're headed to Florida to cover the story of Andrea Deanne Durham. It was the evening of February 1st, 1990, when 15-year-old Ashi Alford and her mother Roseanne Sterling left their apartment at the Royale Apartments at Colonial Drive and Mayflower Avenue in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. At their home was 13-year-old Andrea. The mother and daughter were only gone for about two hours, and upon returning, they expected to find a freshly vacuumed home as that was the chore that had been assigned to Andrea that night. Instead, they were perplexed to find an unlocked front door, a quiet home, and the vacuum standing upright in the middle of the room. Going through the home looking for Andrea, they quickly realized she was not there. Adding to their concern was what was there. All of her belongings, her purse, money, clothes, nothing was missing. Right away, they called the police. 
And I'm sure I don't have to tell you how that was handled. Even though her family assured them she would have never run away and she never insinuated that she would, they decided the 13-year-old child had done just that. When the family disagreed and were adamant she wouldn't have left unless she knew the person or had been taken, the police pointed to two recent life events that, for them, were only confirmation she had left on her own accord. First was where she lived. While her parents split up when the kids were little, she and her sister and mother had very recently moved into the Royale Apartments. It's never easy to change schools, especially at that age, so it was pretty well known that she was not pleased with the situation. From what I've read, it didn't sound like it was a major depression episode or that she had a bad attitude, but she just made it known that that was not where she wanted to be living. Andrea had always loved going to church. In fact, she was known for giving part of her allowance to Christian missionaries. That didn't keep her from getting into typical teenage trouble, though. She got busted by the cops when she was a lookout as some of her friends raided cars at a Red Lobster parking lot. Being her first offense and that she wasn't actually participating in the stealing, she was only given community service. Her family, again, promised the police that even that incident hadn't shaken her up so much that she would have run away. Before disappearing into thin air, Andrea was an eighth grader at Pryor Middle School. She was a good student, her older sister always getting into much more trouble than her. She loved church, tennis, dancing, camping, and going to the beach. Because the police classified her as a runaway, the home was not treated as a crime scene, so there is basically no evidence surrounding her case. Her sister, Ashea, told CNN in 2010 how damaging the loss of her sister was. She lived as an only child, but deep down she knew she wasn't. No matter where she went, she was always looking for her sister, always thinking and hoping, maybe that's her. Desperate to keep her sister's name in the news, she and her mother made several television appearances. The psychics left her feeling used, but the worst was the show that prompted her to approach a young girl that resembled her sister to see if it was her. It obviously wasn't, but that feeling, that sense that Andrea could be one of those girls passing her in the mall or wherever she was, was how Ashea felt and continued to feel for a long time. The women have since given their DNA to be on file should any remains be recovered and tested. Andrea's photo was featured on prison playing cards. Her mother, now in Texas, gives out flyers to truck drivers. Something that did bring Ashea hope was her mother's new husband. Marrying a little while after Andrea's disappearance, the man said that he had run away as a teen but went back home after 20 years. His family was like Andrea's, certain he was dead and would never be seen or heard from again until that day when, poof, he was magically back in their lives. And maybe that's what Andrea would do, to at the very least bring the family some peace. If that is the case, Ashea says she would let her sister know that, quote, no matter the reason she was gone, that we'd welcome her with open arms and everything would be forgiven. There's absolutely no reason for her to stay away. Nobody's angry. Just to know that she's alive would be enough. I'm sure that feeling goes for almost anyone who has left home. The people you left just want to know you're okay, not that you have to have a life with them again. But given the circumstances, Andrea's belongings being left behind, no note, no sign of her for all of these years, no contact with anyone, the open front door, the standing vacuum, it's hard to imagine the case being that she simply walked out the door. At the time, Andrea Deanne Durham was 5'3", 110 pounds, with blonde hair and green eyes. 
If you have any information about what happened to her or her current location, you are asked to call the Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office at 850-609-2000 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. Now from Florida to Iowa, where 16-year-old Kimberly Sue Doss went missing in 1982. Of all the runaway train cases, this one has the most conflicting information. There is more information from conversations about her case on blogs and message boards than actual articles. With that being said, let's get into the details we do know. What makes Kimberly's case so confusing is the belief that she disappeared or left home on her own accord on multiple occasions. The reporting of each had since melded into one report, making her exact age and the dates of when she went missing confusing. Before Kimberly went missing, she was in the Quad City Times of Davenport, Iowa. On the cover of the It's a Woman's World section, there was an Ann Landers advice article, a story about checking apples for razor blades, and a collage of random Halloween photos. It was October 30, 1970. Kimberly was only four years old, and she was pictured along with her Head Start classmates at the Trinity Episcopal Cathedral. As the eight children sat at the table, teacher Miss McAllister was showing them how to carve the small pumpkins that sat in front of them. Of those eight kids, only Kimberly is looking at the camera, while the other seven seem glued to whatever their teacher was saying. Kimberly has her hand in her mouth and seems to be looking right at you. On March 24, 1980, it's theorized that Kim was at her boyfriend's house where they got into an argument. After she left the house, she called him at a later time to say she was with a friend, Debbie, in Texas. No one knows who this Debbie person was or why Kimberly would have gone there. From what I've read, it appears Kimberly was born in either Iowa or Louisiana. But after her parents divorced, she and her mother, I don't know if there were any siblings involved, then moved to Texas. At some point, she returned home after the 1980 Debbie situation, according to the Charlie Project, and then her next date of disappearance was 9-27-82, although some reports say 1984. Either way, it was the early 90s, and she and her mother were living in Houston. On September 27th, she left Houston on a Greyhound bus to go visit her father in Iowa. Three weeks later, there was a reported sighting of Kimberly at an Iowa Greyhound station, which was never 100% confirmed. It was confirmed that she never made it to her father's. That alone seems quite confusing. She made her way all the way to Iowa, was there for a few weeks, but didn't see her father? Two years later, someone with the charitable organization for homeless youth, Thursday's Child, claimed to have encountered Kimberly in Hollywood, California, where she was working as a sex worker under the trafficker James Wiseman. That girl had stringy, bleach-blonde hair, unlike Kimberly's brunette, and was using the name Kimberly Gardner. She was also reported to be about five foot six, which was four inches taller than Kimberly. Because of those differences, Kimberly's mother did not believe it had been her daughter on Hollywood Boulevard, so no further investigation was done. It was probable the teenager had been growing, wearing heels, and the reporting party maybe wasn't an expert in heights. But what had caught their eye in the first place was the significant gap in her front teeth, just like Kimberly Doss. A few years later, Thursday's child officially decided that the Kimberleys were in fact the same person. But of course, by then, they were unable to locate her in the Los Angeles area. In the end, the theory is that Kim ran away in 1980 and returned home. Then, either two or four years later, she left again due to her hatred of living in Houston and being away from her dad. 
Leaving home in Texas, she went to Iowa. Never going to her father's, she was nearly 18, and perhaps she just wanted a fresh start, disconnecting from everyone she knew. This unfortunately left her vulnerable to being victimized, and she was perhaps trafficked into the Los Angeles sex trade. It's hard to imagine that after nearly 40 years, she hasn't been found, her location hasn't been discovered, and she hasn't reached out to any of her family or friends. Then again, there was another article in the Quad City Times that said she ran away in 1980 and in 1984, she was removed from the missing persons list as she would have been an adult. Cool, so a child can disappear, perhaps even be kidnapped, but if they age out of the system, no further effort will be put into locating them. Kimberly Sue Doss was born on February 12, 1966. She would be 57 years old now. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'2 and 125 pounds. She was white with brown hair, brown eyes, and a gap in her front teeth. She may use the name Kimberly Kathleen Gardner and the birthday of September 17, 1963. If you know anything about Kimberly's whereabouts or what happened to her between 1980 and 1986, you are asked to contact the Davenport Police Department at 563-328-6749. Her case number is 8246115. In January 1989, Jared Skyro was a 12-year-old boy living in Minnesota when a man kidnapped him. The man threatened to shoot Jared before sexually assaulting him. After doing as he wished, the man let Jared go, telling him to run away without looking back or he would be shot. Jared did just that and thankfully told his family what happened, and investigators were able to collect DNA. Then, less than a year later, and only 10 miles away, there was another incident. 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling had ridden his bike with his friend Aaron and brother Trevor. Trevor was only 10, the other boys were both 11. They then went to a convenience store in St. Joseph, located about 80 miles northwest from Minneapolis. Grabbing a video to rent, the boys started heading home. Then, out of nowhere, a masked man stopped the boys in their tracks. Holding a gun, he demanded the three of them put their bikes in a nearby ditch and get down on the ground, laying on their stomachs. The boys complied. The man then asked them how old they were. Hearing Trevor was only 10, the man let him go. Just like in Jared's case, he was told to run into the woods, and if he looked back, the man would shoot him. With the two boys left, the man told them to roll over so he could look at them. For whatever reason, he chose Jacob, and Aaron was also told to run away. The man scooped up Jacob and abducted him. That October night was the last time Jacob was seen alive. Searches started right away, and within a few days, hundreds of searchers joined in helping those who were already in the process, like horse-riding officers. Five days after the abduction, on the 27th, a sketch was released to the public. But it wasn't from Jacob's event. It was from another boy in the area from earlier in the summer. There were similarities in the cases that had detectives feeling the sketch could help. By the end of the month, over 200 members of the National Guard joined in the search, as did eight of Minnesota's Department of Natural Resources workers. No clues were found. At the end of November, a better version of the sketch was released. Again, it brought in no tips. In January of 1990, Jacob's family shared that they would be creating the Jacob Wetterling Foundation. The mission being, we work to end all forms of child maltreatment through education, training, and prevention while advocating for and serving children, adult survivors, and communities. The Jacob Wetterling Resource Center has a proven history of helping children and families. 
During this time, even if there weren't a lot of tips, detectives were conducting interviews with local men who might have been in the area or perhaps had a background that would lead officers to considering them a person of interest. Besides those guys, the boys, their families and friends, and anyone else that could have been of help were interviewed. In all, about 2,000 people were spoken to in the first year. From that, the case went relatively quiet. The family used their experience to help create and pass the Jacob Wetterling Act, which was part of the 1994 crime bill, and required a person convicted of a criminal offense against a minor to register a current address with law enforcement. In 2010, there were some rumblings in the case. A farm in a rural part of town was searched. This was because the incident with the man took place at the end of that farm's driveway. For days, searchers combed the area and even dug up sections of it. Then the farm's owner, Dan Racer, was officially named a person of interest in the case. Testing what had been found at the farm, there were no clues or evidence that connected it to Jacob. Those who cared about Jacob never gave up on the search. In October 2014, 15 years after he was taken, billboards were put up around St. Joseph with age-progressed photos to show what he would look like now as a 36-year-old man along with a tip line. That was when, after hitting dead end after dead end, investigators put a blogger's theory to the test. Joy Baker was a blogger who had found that from the summer of 1986 to the spring of 87, five young boys had been attacked in similar ways. No one had ever been charged with the attempted or actual molestations, but she had thoughts about who could have done it. Looking into the cases, she found some similarities. Like the man attacked the boys in the evening and close to their homes, so perhaps he knew them or had been watching them. The attacker dressed the same in all the cases as well. He wore a puffy jacket and had his face covered with a mask. As part of the investigation, detectives tracked down some of those victims from so many years prior to see if there were any details they had missed all those years before, or if new memories had surfaced. They realized Joy the Blogger was right, and the attacks were not random. On top of that, the man who committed the sexual assaults might have been responsible for Jacob's never-solved abduction. Not only did it fit the M.O., but it took place near the other incidents. With all of that information, police were able to narrow down some possible persons of interest, including Daniel Henrik. He had been interviewed by police back in December of 89, and when asked about that night that Jacob was taken, he couldn't remember his whereabouts. At the same interview, he did provide a DNA sample, but it appears it wasn't run or perhaps the police just didn't have access to testing at the time. As you'll recall from the Black Friday episode, that was when DNA was just being figured out as a tool for crime solving. In 2015, things were different. Running that DNA, it came back as a match for the sexual assault that had happened to Jared nine months before Jacob. Sadly, the statute of limitations had passed on Jared's kidnapping and assault, so Daniel could not be charged. But that didn't mean a search warrant couldn't be issued. And as always, how it's even possible that there's a statute of limitations for assaulting a child is Mm -hmm. ridiculous. So in July, the warrant was executed on Daniel's home. Inside, they found not only child abuse imagery, but news clippings of the reports regarding Jacob's and other missing children's cases. It wasn't until October 28, 16 years and six days after Jacob was last seen, that Daniel was arrested for the child sex abuse photos and was announced as an official person of interest in Jacob's case. 
A year later, in September 2016, Daniel took a plea deal. As part of it, he would plead guilty to the possession of those child photos. As another part of the deal, he took detectives to a pasture about half an hour from where Jacob had been abducted. It happened to be near where Daniel was living back in 89. In the field, clothing and human remains were found. Within a couple of days, dental records confirmed the worst. They had been the remains of 11-year-old Jacob. The saddest part of his plea was that he was able to tell the judge the details of what happened with Jacob. After choosing him from the three boys, he handcuffed him, put him in his car, and started to drive. Getting to a gravel pit in the town Daniel was living, he then sexually assaulted the little boy. When he was done, Jacob said he was cold, so Daniel let him get dressed. Once dressed, Jacob was desperate to go home. When he asked Daniel if he could, he said, quote, I can't take you all the way home. In his confession, Daniel said, he started to cry. I said, don't cry. While still standing in the gravel, a police car with lights and siren blaring came flying by Daniel and he panicked. The gun he had used to threaten so many children had never been loaded. That was until he got scared. Putting two bullets in, he demanded Jacob turn away from him. Pulling the trigger with the gun against Jacob's head, it didn't work. So he continued to pull the trigger until he struck Jacob twice and he dropped to the earth. After killing and molesting the 11-year-old, Daniel Henrik went home for a few hours. Needing to do something with Jacob's body, he decided to move him from the gravel pit to a field 300 yards away. In some sort of disgusting anniversary, Daniel went back to Jacob's grave a year later. He was freaked out when he saw some of Jacob's remains and clothing were starting to peek out from the ground. Daniel then, quote, gathered up as much as I could and put it in a bag and transported it across the highway, which was the field Jacob was eventually found in all those years later. Jacob's family finally had answers, but they wouldn't bring their boy back. Patty, Jacob's mom, said after hearing the details that Daniel confessed to, quote, It's incredibly painful to know his last days, last hours, last minutes. To us, Jacob was alive until we found him. The judge also had some thoughts about Daniel's actions, saying, We won't pretend that this crime and sentence is about child pornography. It is also about changing the lives of so many children and parents who prayed for Jacob's return and also feared you coming out of the dark. Every child knows the story of Jacob Wetterling. You stole the innocence of children in small towns, in the cities of Minnesota and beyond. This crime is so brutal and awful that it is unlikely society will ever let you go free. The sentence was Daniel's reasoning for taking the deal. Instead of being charged with Jacob's murder, he was charged with possessing child sex abuse materials and was sentenced to 20 years. Daniel is now almost 60 and still has 14 years to go, so he could very likely die while residing in the Devons Federal Medical Center, which is a prison for those with medical, either physical or mental, needs. This case is one of those ones I think like defined my interest in true crime as a kid. Mm. I, I remember his face vividly. And I do want to point out that if you're interested in this case, there is a, an amazing podcast in the dark. Season one is totally focused on this case. And it's it's cool because I mean, this would have never been solved, uh, or at least it made it may have eventually, but it, the way the people opened up the other boys that were molested and attacked they were so brave to like come forward and tell their story and share it with so many people that yeah. that is why it got, you know, readdressed and they had a 
They had a suspect. Like It is really a, a good one, but it's also devastating to think he was right there. They searched yeah. everywhere and he was right there the whole time. The family was just tortured by people. It was horrible, like psychics coming out of the woodwork, mm. claiming they knew where he was or he was alive. And it's just really painful. All those things in the 80s and 90s that we yeah. hear in these cases happened in this one. So uh, I highly recommend checking out that podcast. It was very well done, but just heartbreaking. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with this one. So it was interesting to learn of. And I'm not surprised that you know it, but I was surprised that you knew that name. But it's just awful. And, and it makes you wonder, too, how many victims there really were. Because you're right. There's how so often? Many, yeah. How often do little boys, especially? And I mean, we're talking like pubescent boys. Exactly. Like, yeah, little kids is one thing, but yeah, eleven, twelve, thirteen. It's a taboo subject. Definitely to to come forward and say that, especially another man did that to you, and to go like uh, on audio before mm-hmm. the case was broken. Like it, it was just uh, very impress impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank goodness those that did come forward did because then that blogger was able to look at all those reports and go, wait a minute, there's some sort of pattern going on here. Thank goodness they did. And who knows how many people are out there that he did not have to take responsibility for that he harmed. So luckily he's in prison. And will hopefully be there till he dies. So this story is actually about Christopher Kurz, a boy featured in the runaway train video. But I couldn't tell his story without talking about Jacob and Jared's cases. There had obviously been a rash of sexual assaults and kidnappings in the area when Chris went missing, so it's hard for his parents to not imagine he was another one of those victims. Lonnie and Jim, Chris's parents, were heartbroken for the families as they watched the walls and poles of town get covered in missing posters. They couldn't imagine that just a few months later, their own son's face would be on a poster of his own. April 20th has a lot of history— Besides being a whole weed holiday thing, there are some weird coincidences, like how it's Hitler's birthday, it's the anniversary of the Columbine shooting, and the Deepwater Horizon oil rig explosion. Most of those events hadn't happened yet when Chris Kearns stayed home from school in 1990. Complaining of a headache, he opted to stay in bed, comforted by his mother who gave him some Tylenol before she left for work. His dad was out of town for a business trip. When Lori returned home at the end of the day, she saw that the family van, a 1988 blue Dodge Caravan, was not in the driveway as it had been when she left. She also saw that their normally leashed border collie was actually out running free. Inside on the kitchen table, there was a note to her from Chris. It read, Mom, something important came up, plus feeling somewhat better. Back by six. Unless I get lost. Love, Chris. Chris's penchant for getting lost when he was driving was the only reason his mom could figure the word lost was underlined twice. Unsure of what was going on, his family started searching for him. Checking his bank account, it was found he had withdrawn $200. Then, on the 21st, his parents received a piece of mail from Chris, postmarked from the neighboring town of Duluth, which was about a two-hour drive from his home. This note was also handwritten. In it, he admitted to having lied about having a headache, saying he did so so he could have access to the van. He needed to use it to get away, to not even I know where. The note also implied Chris had left with the intention of taking his life. He apologized to his family and friends for any pain he caused. On the 22nd, the van was found nearly four hours north, about 20 minutes outside Grand Rapids, Minnesota. In the van were the keys and another note, this one explaining the ownership of the van. 
Finally, with a place to look, three searches took place around the van's location. Search dogs were able to pick up his scent, but it was soon lost. Without being found, dead or alive, there were hopes that perhaps Chris was simply running away and he had hitchhiked from that location. There was even a tip stating exactly that, but it could not be verified. Chris's family couldn't believe they were now printing out missing posters of their own, that they were the ones desperately hoping for news about their son. In the first six months, there wasn't much in the way of clues, but there was a harasser. Someone would call the family's home, but wouldn't speak. The only sounds coming through were that of a party. Lori was certain the calls were coming from Chris, but eventually they stopped. Two years later, Chris's photo would be featured in the Runaway Train music video. The publicity was appreciated, but it didn't lead to any answers. The years went by with no information. Chris's family asked hunters and locals in the area surrounding where the van had been to keep an eye out for his remains. More specifically, his zebra watch and a Mossberg 20-gauge bolt-action three-shell clip shotgun. It is believed there was a possibility that Chris hadn't taken any ammo for the gun and abandoned it along the way. Police have asked for any similar weapons found in the area to be turned in. In 2004, the police received a letter postmarked from Seattle. The letter said Chris was a guardian angel, so they no longer needed to look for him. They came to the conclusion quite quickly that that letter was fake. When Jacob's remains were found, there was renewed hope. Maybe their son hadn't been a victim of the same man, but Jacob had been lost for decades before being found. Maybe the same could be true for Chris. Their beloved son, who enjoyed school, skiing, going paintballing with his close and small group of friends, tinkering with computers, and was a varsity swimmer and a clarinet player in the band, is still lost. Looking back, no one can think of a sign that things in Chris's life were going poorly. He had just been honored as a National Merit Scholar semifinalist and was asked to join the Honor Society at his school. There has been an age-progressed photo of Chris released showing what he would have looked like as a 43-year-old man. Now he would be 49. His parents and two younger siblings have all tried to move on with their lives, but it doesn't take much of a reminder to bring back all of the emotions surrounding the loss of their loved one. The Egan Police Department still considers Chris's case open and unsolved, although they do believe he took his own life, but his remains have yet to be found. If anyone knows anything about Chris's disappearance, whereabouts, remains, or any other information, you are asked to call 612-454-3900. These are always so sad. It's very sad. It's. It took me a long time to get through all of these cases, not just because there's so many of them, and, and some of them, like I say, are really extensive with mm-hmm. the information, but just uh, part of me feels bad even putting it out there for people. But it's like these are people's lives. These are their kids. This is something people have to carry every day. But just the repetitive nature of young child and whether they're running away or were taken and then it's not taken seriously and then they're just gone and everything that could have been done is now too late to have happen <sighs> over and over and over. So, yeah, it it's difficult and um and I did break protocol a little bit by going out of the Pacific Northwest, but one there are quite a few cases surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly from from our, here. Mm-hmm. Um and I started out with it with the other cases being on Patreon and I was like, well, no, they're still missing. 
Yeah. Like we still need to get this information out. And our listeners out. are everywhere. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe of all these stories, maybe there's one person who's like, I know that person. They're still around. Or I heard someone talking about this. You just never know. And as always, it's these tips. And I don't care that it's been 30 years because that doesn't matter to the families or the kids. So things have been solved. We've seen it happen. Yeah. So unfortunately, I'll be back next week with uh, another section of these stories from the Runaway Train video. In the meantime, go watch the video. Yeah. If you haven't seen the video, go watch it. It's on YouTube. There are several versions, like I said. And we'll also post it uh, on our blog so you can watch it. So, yeah, go watch the video and... You know, if you're in the area with these cases, maybe look into them just to see who you know that maybe was connected, especially for us. We're all kind of in the same age range as these kids at the time, you know, so someone knows something. And uh, unfortunately, I will have many more stories to tell over the next two episodes. didn't have middle school <gasps> those catholics oh yeah those catholics mm-hmm. kindergartners and seniors all together <laughs> smart yeah it was k through eight i knew those people forever there it was pretty cool <laughs> and i didn't have to meet anyone else oh that's nice <laughs> which i love you <gasps> fuck you <laughs> i'm amazing everybody uh, loves me i'm a wangel with angs <laughs> fuck you don't use my words against me you told me a a vulnerable story How and I'm going to use you. it against you. The most embarrassing story of my life <laughs> thrown in my face. That time I mixed up the letters. <laughs> the one time A you nightmare. Felt, the one time you felt embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> I mixed up the letters. You know, they like have a movie with like a really sad story for a character and that's mine. <laughs> that <laughs> my, hip laughing that, at me. Oh, angels with it. That, that moment happens. It goes like black and white. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. hello, darkness. my <laughs> You're just crying. A single tear runs down your cheek. As he's making fun of me. Oh, my God. That's funny. You turn and look out the window. It's raining. <laughs> Never again. Never again. Never again. <laughs> like Batman. I'll get you, Kip. Promo code RAIN for, for 90%, 90% on. on. Com- Comic-Con tickets? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Crime. Crime. <laughs> That's our new promo. Thanks, guys. Put it at the top yeah. of the <laughs> We do need to write a promo. <laughs> I don't remember the word. What? Hocus pocus. Hocus pocus, shilly boy. (laughs) A man who was fairly new to directing, but had worked with Roger Watt. Oh my God, what is happening? I was leaned back in my chair with my mouth covered and turned the other way. Well, it still was like. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know. (laughs) Well, then I need a mute switch over here. I'm sorry, it's instant breakfast. Ugh, that made me almost instantly lose my breakfast. Instant barfest. <laughs> <laughs> We're mean. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of bullies. Sunday night, Sunday morning gangbang. Sunday morning gangbang with my friends. Is that the worst time for a gangbang? Sunday morning? Yeah. 1,000%. Not at, the best If it's at church, Friday I night? think that's great. <laughs> Maybe. I'd say Saturday, Afternoon? 6 p.m. Yep. 
Yeah. And then you're, home, you're home before midnight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take a shower. Mm-hmm. Clean all those memories off of you. <laughs> Let us know. Gmail us. The best time for a gangbang. And when we say gangbang, we don't mean the choo-choo train. We mean mean, hateful comments at each other. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you think you're untouchable, you forget what jokes are. Yeah. That's how I am. Four pounds, 12 ounces. And she goes, oh, yeah, it was a real easy birth. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's I bet half it was. the size. Jesus. <laughs> I was three weeks premature, so look out. <laughs> I was little and sick. Oblige, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think. Is that the word? I think, I'm guessing. Yeah, that is a word. Obligado. <laughs> it's not what I have written here. Please call the Coos County. Coos County. Please. I got nervous. And a college of, a college, stupid, <laughs> silly fuck. It's pretty clear you never went to collage. <laughs> Sick burn. Me neither. <laughs> oh no, I mixed up the letters. How ah! dare you? What a freak. On the twenty second, the found was the found was van. I mixed up the words. That's like some pootie tang talk. Sadate. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>